This is Faithful Sayings, broadcast by the Leon Valley Church of Christ. Well, thanks for tuning in. I'm going to begin reading in Ephesians chapter 4, so I would encourage you to open your Bible and read with me in Ephesians chapter 4, beginning in verse 1. Paul says, I, the prisoner of the Lord, implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, showing tolerance for one another in love, being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as also you were called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. Now, according to some research done by a group called Gordon and Criswell, they did a study to see if they could determine or get an idea of how many different denominations, different churches existed worldwide over the 20th and early 21st century. So in 1900, they determined that there were probably around 1,600 different denominations, different churches uh, that identified it, you know, as their, as their own church, their own group, you know, Methodist, Baptist, Presbyterian, Episcopalian, so on and so forth, and various, you know, sects and, and, and branches of uh, those those groups and certainly others. Uh, by 1970, so 70 years later, uh, there was around 18,000, almost 19,000 actually, 18,800. And then by the year 2000, 34,200. And then by the year 2015, around 45,000 different denominations worldwide, different religious groups that identified as a distinct religious group or, or church. And, uh, you know, I think that that's a tragedy in the, in the religious world. You're going to find lots of folks that would disagree with that and think that diversity is great and, you know, having lots of options is is great. But according to Paul in Ephesians chapter 4, there's only one faith. And oftentimes, you know, when religious people are having a discussion or spiritual conversation, they might ask, you know, what faith are you? And someone will say, well, I'm of the Baptist faith or I'm of the Methodist faith or, or even I'm the Church of Christ faith uh, or something else, something to this effect, Catholic faith, etc. You get the picture. Uh, but the Bible says there's really only one. There's only one. And there's only one body. One church is what that means if you read Ephesians 1, 22 through 23. That's what Paul is saying there when he's using that, the word body of Christ. He's talking about the people who belong to Christ. And one Lord and one baptism and so on and so forth. And and so, you know, any idea or teaching that division is good is foreign to the New Testament. Uh, that this kind of unity and diversity teaching and doctrine, I think that's that's fairly pervasive in the religious world, is is simply not something vouchsafed by Scripture itself. You know, in fact, Paul is commanding Christians here to, in verse 3, he says, make every effort to keep unity, right? So that's the opposite of what we see in the religious world today. He says, make every effort to preserve unity. And then he goes on to describe actually earlier in, in, in the chapter in verse 2, he's describing the qualities that are going to be necessary, that the kind of people we have to be if we are going to preserve the unity that he's talking about here, the, the oneness that the New Testament says God's people are to have. 
And he talks about humility and patience and gentleness and bearing with one another in love. And then that goes back to the the idea in verse 1 of Ephesians 4 where he's talking about walking in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called. And so he's he's building upon that. Okay, walk in a manner worthy. What does that look like? Well, be humble, gentle, and patient. And, oh, by the way, verse 3, preserve unity among yourselves. And then he reminds us in verse 4, of all the, this this of the single singularity or the, the single nature of the church of, of God's people the the one body the one father the one lord one faith and one baptism and so on and so forth so regardless regardless of how many denominations may come into existence it will never change what the truth about the singularity of God's church is that there that there is only one and the truth about also the truth is, is not going to change about why denominations have come into existence, why division exists. You know, if we're just working from the text here and what Paul says, well, then we know that division comes as a result because Christians at some point somewhere stopped walking in a manner worthy of the calling with which they had been called and division resulted and one or both parties that came as a result of that division started marching under the banner of another man or another teaching or another idea. And so uh, they went into apostasy. Denominationalism is apostasy. If God says, don't divide yourselves and, and religious people do exactly that, well, that means apostasy has occurred somewhere. And until there is a return to and love for truth, further apostasy will only be the result. And here's why I say that, because of what Jesus prays in John 17. So not just because of Paul's words here, uh, but uh, Jesus' prayer in John chapter 17. So he prays first for himself, then he prays for his apostles in John 17, and then he prays for all disciples everywhere, even future disciples who are going to believe as a result of the apostles' teaching. And in verse 20 is where he starts that. But if you just go through John 17, we're not going to read the whole thing for the sake of time. But if you go to, to John 17, pay attention to a few things. Number one, what Jesus says he came to do, as he'll use a phrase called manifesting. He uses this phrase, manifesting the Father's name to his apostles. Uh, and then he connects that idea with uh, something specific. And that is teaching, or he speaks time and time again of giving them the word or giving them the teaching and then receiving the word or accepting the word in verse um, in verse eight, the words which you gave me, I have given to them. They received them and they understood that I came forth from you. So he's talking about revealing the father, revealing who God is through not only his person, of course, being God in the flesh, but also through what he taught others. Uh, in, in his words, in his doctrine. And he's saying these individuals who received it, received the teaching, well, they understood. They understood who I am. They understood my origin, that I, that I came from you. And then he goes on to pray that these individuals be kept in that word or that teaching and that they be sanctified or set apart by the means of that teaching or truth. Is what he describes here, he says in verse 17, so you drop down, to verse 15, he prays, I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but to keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. And then verse 17, sanctify them in the truth. 
your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, I also have sent them into the world. For their sakes I sanctify myself, that they themselves also may be sanctified in truth. And so Jesus is saying they're they're going to be in the world, and I don't want you to, they're going to be hated, verse 14, just as I'm hated. And I, he's praying, Father, I don't want you to take them out of the world, but rather he, he doubles down. He says, no, I want, I want them to be separate. I want them to be sanctified I want by virtue of your truth. So insofar as, again, as he prayed previously, uh, that they receive and obey the truth, they will be set apart. And then he, he goes on to say that they may be one, Father, as you and I are one, verse 22. And that I will be in them, verse 23, and you and me, that they may be perfected, notice, in unity. That the world may know that you may be, that, uh, that you have sent me, that they be perfected in unity. So unity then, you know, the, the kind of unity, and this isn't different than what Paul's talking about in Ephesians chapter 4, Right, the, the unity that Paul is talking about being diligent to preserve is the same unity that Jesus is praying for here. But the point that, that we see in John chapter 17 is that unity, and Ephesians chapter 4, is that unity only comes as a result of individuals loyal to truth, who, who desire to be sanctified in the truth or, or set apart in that regard. So Jesus, what Jesus is praying for and is teaching us is that unity is going to come as a result of a particular uh, kind or quality of person seeking it. Our unity isn't going to be uh, forced upon his people arbitrarily by, uh, you know, making a list of things wherein, you know, if they can tick all the boxes and say, you know, if they preach this about baptism, if they teach this about the Lord's Supper, if they teach this about X, Y, and Z, well, and if they can all agree on that, well, then there's there's unity. That misses that misses the point. What Jesus is talking about is that, yes, we do, he desires unity, we should desire unity, but before that, we have to desire truth and have a love for truth, ultimately, if we're going to be set apart and united upon truth, you see. And I think that's, that is why I say until and unless there is a return to and a love for truth, further division and further apostasy is only going to be the result. So we shouldn't be surprised by the numbers then from Gordon and Criswell as denominations seem to, to grow and more division occurs because you, you, the only way to rectify the, the problem and to stop that is to, to be satisfied with the truth. And use that as our only standard, uh, not someone else's interpretation, and not a creed or manual or catechism written by somebody else, and then, you know, using that as the lens through which I see the scripture. Because the the promise of scripture, John seven seventeen, is that if if you truly desire to know the will of God, Jesus says you're going to know it, you're going to discover it. Because people who truly desire to know the will of God make it their business to seek it out. And God doesn't leave them hanging. He doesn't leave them with questions. He doesn't do that for honest hearts that are seeking to know him better. You know, the promise is, draw near to me and I will draw near to you in James chapter 4. Seek and you will find. 
Right? So God, God isn't going to hide himself. Right? He wants people to know his will. First Timothy 2, 4, and 5, he wants all people to come to a knowledge of the truth and, and be saved. And so when, you know, hypothetically, let's say, or not hypothetically, just look at, you know, examples in the book of Acts. If you have two individuals who differ honestly about what the truth is, and they, they come together in a sincere effort to discern what truth is, acknowledging honestly their differences, but wanting to arrive at, at the truth and knowing that the differences of human origin, not of God's origin, and they study together and they work together, again, out of a, not out of a spirit of competition, but out of cooperation because they want to know the truth. They both love the truth. As they draw nearer to God and through his truth, they will draw nearer to each other. And I say look at the book of Acts because it's all over the pages of Acts. Uh, Acts chapter 18 with Priscilla and Aquila and Apollos is one example. Right, Priscilla and Aquila, they see Apollos, they hear him preach. But Apollos doesn't know of the one baptism. It says he knew only of the baptism of John. So he doesn't know of the one baptism of, of Christ. And so Priscilla and Aquila, they take him aside privately and they teach him the way of truth more accurately, Luke says. And Apollos, Apollos submits to the truth. Right? He, he knows this this must be the case, and that and he was teaching wrongly in ignorance, but if Priscilla and Aquila don't condone or encourage his, uh, his, his error, in fact, they're very respectful of him, and the Holy Spirit speaks highly of Apollos as an eloquent teacher. He's mighty in the Scriptures, but he needed to be taught in this regard more accurately, and, and he was, and because he had a heart willing to receive the truth, he submits to it, and he and Priscilla and Aquila are united. He and Paul are united. He's united with all other Christians because <clears throat> not not because he comes to the right conclusion per se, but because primarily, first of all, he had a heart for truth. He wanted to know what the truth was, and he didn't get defensive, and he didn't try to draw a party line or say, you are fine, you go and you preach that baptism. I'm going to continue to preach the baptism of John. He didn't do that. And as a result, because of the humility and the desire for truth in both parties, in both Apollos and Priscilla and Quill and other disciples, there is unity, right? So that's that's what I mean. It's it's Jesus is talking about a kind or quality of person that we have to be as his disciples if we're going to have the unity that he prayed for which I believe will come as, as a result, right? Because he says, so that they will be one as he's praying for sanctification in truth. And again, that's not any different than what Paul is saying in Ephesians 4, because what he is outlining there is walking worthy of the calling. And then he goes on to describe humility, patience, you know, and, and being tolerant with one another. He's he's talking about walking according to truth. Right? He's, he's laying down principles of of the gospel, and so unity isn't the the goal per se that that we we want unity but but first before there can be unity there has to be that desire to be sanctified in truth without which there can never be real unity you know it, according to one US census that tracks numbers of denominations and I don't know how accurate these things are but apparently you know four major denominations in 
in the world have seen a serious decline in their membership. And we might ask the question, well, what leads to some of these declines? Well, you know, I think it's, I don't think it's the reason is fundamentally different than what leads to the, the explosion of denominations and seeing those numbers increase, right? It's not that people are abandoning uh, false doctrine per se, but they are seeking some other kind of, of independence. And here's what I mean by that. In the early 2000s, there was a surge in Bible churches. And so you had these, or community churches. Uh, so you had these various groups kind of cropping up all over town. And they, you know, they usually branded themselves as non-denominational or undenominational. And maybe they just adopted a name as we're just a Bible church or we're just a community church or something of this effect. And so they didn't wear any uh, particular name of a denomination like Lutheran or Methodist or Baptist or the case may be. And I visited several of these when I was in college um, during that time period. And they're certainly still around. Uh, They haven't gone away. But what I found was as I visited these, these different undenominational, you know, Bible churches as they identified themselves, what I found was, is that there wasn't any major doctrinal difference between what those groups were teaching and preaching and practicing versus, you know, what the Baptist church downtown was teaching, preaching and, and, and practicing. Uh, but whether what I found was just another group that had its own organization and supported its own institutions and had its own satellite churches as they began to grow or campuses in a lot of cases is what they, they called them. So they still had, even though they identified as non-denominational, they still had a denominational structure. They still had this kind of mother uh, church that would establish other campuses or local churches, which then were sponsored by that uh, mother church. So it was still a denominational pattern, right? It was organization or structure, and it wasn't doctrinally different than what you would find in other denominations, right? So it it was making a distinction without a difference, basically is what what it boiled down to. So while there may be, I think, some decline in numbers in membership, according to the U.S. Census, from, you know, quote, major denominations, as they call them, well, uh, those folks aren't, aren't abandoning the teaching of those denominations. I don't believe they're just reorganizing themselves into other parties, you know, where they, where they have their own show basically. Uh, it's, so it's still the same problem. The point is it's, it's the same problem, just repeating itself. It's not a return to truth. It's maintaining false doctrine, but we want to have our own organizational structure and, and it, it just mirrors that of other denominations. And in 1 Corinthians 1.10, as soon as this kind of problem rears its head, Paul jumps on it in 1 Corinthians 1 and verse 10. He says, I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all agree and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and in the same judgment. You be united in the same mind and the same judgment, right? So there, there's that issue of unity again. And, and here in Corinth, it was, you know, I don't, I'm not going to say worse, but Paul goes on to describe the the situation more specifically in in chapter one as he talks about getting information from one of the sisters there that 
certain Christians in Corinth had adopted the names of apostles and, and were kind of wearing them as a religious label. You know, he says, one says, I'm of Paul. Another says, I'm of Cephas or Peter. And another says, I'm, a, I'm of Apollos. And another says, I'm of Christ. And he asks the questions, you know, was Paul crucified for you? Were you baptized in the name of Paul? And so on and so forth. So what he's doing then with the two, as he's talking to these various factions within the church, he's reorienting them, right? He's, he's, re, he's reminding them when he's asking those questions, he's saying that I'm not the ideal here. I'm, I'm not the one who gave my life for you. I'm not the one whose name you were baptized. At least you shouldn't be. So you shouldn't be branding yourself as a disciple of Paul or a disciple of Peter, but rather of Christ. Now, that's relevant to our discussion because, well, first of all, we see division taking place, but Paul is immediately reorienting them to where their true love and loyalty should be, and that is to Christ and therefore to his His truth, right? He is, he is truth incarnate. He's the word incarnate. He is the way, the truth, and the life, John 14, 6. And so it's it's always going to be easier to rally around men and to take pride in a in a certain preacher or pastor or party um than to humbly follow the lord right because we just we like ego trips that's all there is to it that's why it's a temptation that's why it, that's why it existed in first corinthians but true oneness and true unity is only going to be found among brethren who are determined to put God first and not not draw party lines, who love the praise of God more than the praise of men. That's the kind of people we have to be or we just end up denominationalist. Now, Corinth was not a perfect local church. There are no perfect local churches. And these Christians in the first century had to work toward unity just as any other congregation, just as the ones in Ephesus did that Paul is addressing in chapter 4 that we read at the outset of our study. And sometimes this is offered as a, as a point of criticism of uh, local churches when party lines are, are being drawn or, you know, we're having a spiritual conversation and it gets competitive. And, you know, someone might say to justify themselves, well, you know, no local church is perfect. And therefore, I'm just going to stick with, you know, my my party. Right. Maybe we're getting some things wrong, but it's OK because, you know, no, quote, local church is perfect. But this is but this is the very thing Scripture condemns. That's the very kind of thinking Scripture condemns, because what we're essentially saying is I'm just going to settle and be satisfied with my current level of understanding. Yeah, it could be wrong, but at least it's acceptable to all human parties and we can get along. But that's not real unity. Right. That's refusing to be the kind of person that Jesus is praying for in in John chapter 17, who would be sanctified in, in the truth. That's that's abandoning the very attitude that he wants us to have. A desire to, to be sanctified in truth and be satisfied with nothing less. And so, you know, for example, someone once asked me if he if I thought that I was a member of the, the true church where I was where I was a member. And, you know, I, I could have you know, I could have launched into an explanation about, you know, the, the establishment of the church, the biblical name for the church, how it's to be organized, and, and all the characteristics in the New Testament that are usually used to identify it. You know, I could have done that. But 
the my, my friend was asking about the specific local church of which I was a member, right? And so if I go to the New Testament and I start proving the features of the, the first century universal church, that doesn't necessarily prove that the local church where I'm a member qualifies, right? And so, so I think without realizing he was trying to trap me into saying that the local church where I'm a member is the ideal, right? And in defense of this idea that no local church is perfect, so just, you know, live and let live, basically. But here's the thing. The New Testament is teaching us, yeah, no local church is the ideal, but any local church that isn't striving for the ideal can never be approved of God. And that's where the difference is. And that principle is true on the individual level as well, because all the standards of Christ in his teaching, they're all idealistic. He he is perfect. He's the perfect example and the perfect teacher. And he's called us to be pure and he's called us to be holy and to be perfect as your heavenly father in heaven is perfect. Right. So the, all those goals are literally unattainable to man. I will never be perfectly pure. I'll never be perfectly holy. But what I am to do is to strive for those things, to be ever pressing toward the mark. Philippians 3.14. And Paul himself said, I don't count myself as having attained uh, the the goal already or uh, having already become perfect. But the point is that he was trying. And when we reach a point where we're self-satisfied and we're no longer trying, we're no longer hungry for truth, and we're just pointing to a creed or a manual or a church constitution or a catechism, and we're, we see everything that lends, and we just, you know, we just kind of throw that at people and say, well, here's what I believe, then our heart's in the wrong place. We're no longer striving. And, and the point about this with regard to unity is that the ideal nature of biblical unity is no different from being holy as God is holy and pure as he is pure. And so it can't be attained in the absolute sense. But if I understand that's what I should be striving for, then I can't ever be satisfied. I can't settle for unity and diversity. I have to be honest about my own convictions and with others. And 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 those with whom I have fellowship should also be honest about their convictions. And we both have truth and uni- truth as our constant goal. And therefore, as we pursue truth together and encourage one another in this regard, we find unity because it's the mark toward which we're pressing, just as purity, just as holiness, just as trying to be pleasing to the Lord in every respect. But if I fail to realize the ideal aspect of unity, then I'm then at some point I'm going to stop striving for it. At some point I'm going to be I'm going to consider the level of whatever I've attained, whatever unity I've attained as as the standard. And that's true not only with unity, but purity and holiness and, and whatever the case may be. And that's simply not who Christ has called us to be. You know, when we when we settle and we're satisfied for anything less than this continual pursuit of his truth, then, then there's no other way to go except to just promote promote our own brand. And that and that really that that's what defeats the unity that or that frustrates the unity for which Christ prayed. And it's a shameful thing, and it's an easy trap to fall into. So if you're frustrated by all the division that you see around you, and you and you know it's not right, and you can see it's not the biblical pattern, well, you're not you're not alone in that. 
it should be frustrating and it should be upsetting. You know, it's a huge deterrent, I think, to people who uh, want to begin a search and they want to find a local church and identify with a local church and, and begin studying with a group, but they don't know where to start. And so they just throw their hands up and they say, well, you know, where do, where, do, where do I even begin? There's so many and they're saying different things. And yeah, they say fundamentally we're the same and the, and the differences are only superficial, but, but really it's not right. Really. It's, that's not the case. It's actually just the opposite. Superficially, we may be the same, but fundamentally, we're very different. And the fundamental difference in in God's people, true disciples of Christ, and those who are just playing at religion is, at heart, this sincere desire for the truth. And that's that's what I want. And I want to find other people who have that same desire. And I don't care if they're Baptist or Methodist or whatever their background or tradition is that they that they came from. They want the truth, and I want the truth. And we study together. God promises we're not only going to draw closer to him, we're going to draw closer to each other, and we're going to find unity. If we're honest with ourselves, if we're objective in our study, if we have the same goal of being pleasing to the Lord, we're not going to have much difficulty. But the moment we abandon that that chief desire, that's when trouble begins, and that's where division begins. Right? Just look at Corinth. Just look at any other example offered up in the New Testament of of division. Right? They they were no longer centered on Christ. They became obsessed with their parties and holding the party line and wearing the name of another man and branding themselves. And it was all just one big ego trip. But you strip away all of that, every layer of the putrid onion of, of pride and self-righteousness, and we get back to humbly receiving the word and seeking it, seeking God through it as, as honestly and objectively as we can. He promises we're going to find him. He, he promises we're going to find the solution we're looking for. And there's going to be unity. It, it has to happen. It comes as a result. It's been promised. And so that's what I, that's where I would encourage you to begin. If you're frustrated by all the different religious groups in the world and the division and the different things that, that they teach, well, determine for yourself. First of all, I want to be loyal to Christ and I want to know his truth and I'm going to be satisfied with nothing less than that. And I want to be as honest and objective as I can. And pray to him to help you in that regard. He will help you at the very control center of your life. That's what David did. He prayed for his people. He prayed for his son, Solomon, that he would have a whole heart dedicated to God. We can pray that same prayer. that's That's what God wants. He wants us to come to know him. He wants us to come to salvation. He wants us to be sanctified. But... The responsibility is yours and it's mine to to make that determination to come to him. I appreciate you tuning in. And uh, we'll talk more about denominationalism in, in the coming weeks and God's standard for unity. And I look forward to that. If you have any questions, please feel free to email me at leonvalleychurch at gmail.com. 
And you can certainly visit our website at leonvalleychurch.org. You can find some lessons. One lesson I preached this past Sunday, a lot of the points overlap in this podcast uh, called When Brethren Differ. I encourage you to check out that sermon. Uh, there's a link there. You can find it on YouTube also. It's called When When Brethren Differ. So, again, I appreciate you tuning in. Look forward to studying with you. Please continue to, to pray about these things. Uh, continue to study them on your own, please, as, as you strive to draw near to God. I'm Jason Garcia, and this has been Faithful Sayings.